I've just simply called the sermon this morning the Christmas story. If you were making up a story that you wanted people to believe, surely it would not be like this one. I mean, who would believe it? A young teenage girl, pregnant by God? Her husband found out from an angel? Her baby is the savior of the world? Uh, Placed in a manger and visited by shepherds? And then some philosophers, commonly known as wise men or magi, who were stargazers, they, they believed you could read the future in the stars, much like the palm reader over on Highway 301 near here tells the future by looking at the lines in your hands. These stargazing, important and possibly wealthy men arrive on camels with an entourage because they claim to have been told by the stars that a king has been born, the king of the Jews. Plus, they bring expensive gifts for this king who is a little boy living with his parents, Mary and Joseph. Now, I could go on and on, but the That is the story of Christmas that we're celebrating again and that has been believed for over 2,000 years. The name of this baby is Jesus, and the title of this Jesus is Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And for us who are Christians, we need to realize that. It's not wrong to to invite Jesus into your heart and all of that uh, as Savior and, and as a personal Savior. That's all true, but he is Lord. He's in charge of our lives, but we've been given this, what I call volitional will, that can really mess that up, and Christmas is a good time to think that through and give him all of our lives. Now, Pastor Jim last week talked about the now and the not yet of the good news about Jesus. If I were to turn to the not yet, the story is even more fantastical. Jesus was virgin-born. He claimed to be God. He was rejected by the religious leaders of the day. He was arrested, crucified, a death reserved for the worst of criminals, and placed in a borrowed tomb. In three days, he rose from the dead. He was seen by many and headed back to heaven where he claimed he came from in the first place. So here is what happens in the not yet time to come, which we Christians call the second coming. Uh, And uh, I'm going to read it to you uh, from uh, the book uh, over here in the book of uh, Revelation, chapter 19. Uh, And it's a picture of the second coming of Jesus, which could in some, it could happen at any time, the rapture, the second coming, all of that type of thing. But let me read this to you, and so we'll see the rest of the story, so to speak. Then I saw, I as John here, John the Apostle who wrote this, then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. You know, it's fairly often people ask me, are there animals in heaven? <laughs> let me start again. Then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. Now, we all know here that that's talking about Jesus. That's the context of the whole passage. For he judges fairly 
and wages a righteous war. So this is at the very end of, uh, of uh, the time frame that we're living in now. His eyes are like flames of fire. That's a beautiful metaphor. I mean, sometimes you'll say, she looked at me and it was just, whoa, her eyes are burning right through me. You know, so his eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. Blood was a picture of, for us, it's a picture of forgiveness. And his title was the Word of God. Now, that's kind of important because in the beginning of John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. And the Word, the Greek word for Word, is the word logos. And if you've heard me talk on that before, when we've gone through the book of John, logos ultimately means, it's a philosophical word in a sense, the meaning of life, and here it means Jesus, that Jesus is the logos. And later on in John chapter 1, I think it's verse 14, it tells us that the Logos, the Word, came to dwell among us. I like, to, I like to paraphrase it this way. He pitched his tent among us because he wasn't here to stay. He came for a purpose, and the purpose was the salvation of all of humanity, everyone who would turn to him. And so here we see him in the Revelation in the second coming. He's also called the Word of God. And then it says, the armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, it's a picture of holiness, followed him on white horses, and from his mouth came a sharp sword. Now, that's another metaphor. The Word of God is sharp, two-edged sword. Uh, we've all had the experience of somebody saying something to us that we would say, what he said to me was really cutting, and we don't mean that we were cut, but we were cut emotionally speaking. And here it is here. He says, from his mouth came a sharp uh, a sword to strike down the nations. It's a sword of judgment. He will rule them with an iron robe, and he will lease the fierce wrath of God. Wrath. That's God's righteous anger. The Almighty, God the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. And then here's the point. On his robe, at his thigh, was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that's the picture. But let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and we'll work through quite a few verses here. It starts off this way. <clears throat> This is how the birth of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, I know that uh, most of you uh, know what that means, uh, but just for those that may not realize what it means to be pledged, it's not like being engaged. And so it's common. We have people in the church here all the time. They get engaged, and we're all excited for them. But sometimes they break the engagement. And when they do, the comments might be, well, I thought they were made for one another, but obviously they didn't. And then they get engaged again. And so there's no shame in being engaged or breaking the engagement, but that's nothing like the pledge here. When it says that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, marriages were arranged in those days. Young girls, once they reached puberty, uh, would be pledged to a man. It would all be arranged to be married. And when that 
girl was pledged to that man, that she would be a teenager, uh, that meant that they were going to actually be married, but not for a year. For a year of time, uh, they would be separate from one another, no sexual relationship, and the, uh, par- her parents would be arranging for all of the different things they did and a place for them to stay and all of that. And that pledge could never be broken. And just to show you how strong it was, let's say the husband or the husband-to-be in that pledge died, then they, in that culture they will call uh, the girl uh, the virgin widow. And so that pledge couldn't be broken. And and they couldn't have any relationship until they had the actual ceremony. So this is how the birth of Jesus, who's the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, before they had any sexual relationship, she was found to be with child, pregnant, through the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit had come to Mary and said, Mary, you're greatly favored. You're greatly graced. And you're going to birth the Messiah, and you're going to be pregnant, and all of that. And Mary uh, didn't, couldn't comprehend what was being said to her. She was very fearful. The angel had to tell her to fear not, the angel said. And so she said, how can this be? Because I've never been with a man. And in Luke, it's on the screen, chapter 1, uh, it writes it this way. And the angel answered her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, that means set apart for God's purposes, the Son of God, that's deity. And here's how that happens. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, let's examine it a little further. Look at verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. That really means he was a really godly man. He really cared about Mary. So because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her. In this version, it says quietly. Secretly is a better word here. Now, what did that mean? Well, first, when he heard that she was pregnant, which, and when she told him, an angel came, and it's, I'm pregnant by God. There's no way he believed her. But he knew that if this pregnancy became known, that she would be shamed. And so would he. He'd be in trouble, too, because people would just assume that he and she got together. And, uh, and they shouldn't have. And now she's pregnant. And so he didn't want her to be shamed. He cared that much about her. I don't know what he was thinking. He was in the planning stage trying to figure it out. He's probably thinking, well, the parents know. Maybe we can move away and uh, go someplace where they don't know us or something like that. But then it says in verse 20, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph... Son of David, now this is, an impo- this is very important. We've talked a lot about this in our Genesis study on Wednesdays. The Messiah had to come through the ancestry.com of King David. And that was all through the Bible and the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures, we see that. And Joseph was in the ancestry of King David. And so uh, here's the story. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is 
from the Holy Spirit. I'm adding to it. But what is conceived of her is, as she told you, from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus. The name Jesus means the one who saves. Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came first to the Jewish people, but we're all now able to uh, receive that salvation. Now, verse 22 reads, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said 700, 800 years before through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. Now, Pastor Jim talked about this last week when he talked about Isaiah chapter 9, and then he went to chapter 7 and all of these areas. And here's what Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says. It's verse 23 in our text here. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the one Christmas, a few Christmases ago, I did a three-point sermon on the word Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Point one was God and who, he, who God is. Point two is with, the presence of God. And point three is us, the salvation of God. And you also see that it says that she will be virgin born. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all of the Greek words and the Hebrew words, but I'm only going to say that there is no doubt that it was saying virgin and not young woman or anything like that, uh, that it had to be a virgin, and therefore Mary was that virgin. So verse 24 reads, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union, he had no sexual relationship with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, for me, one of the most thrilling aspects of the Christmas story is the timing of the story. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote a letter uh, to an area called Galatia for all the churches there to have read to them. And so in our Bible, in the New Testament, it's the book of Galatians. In chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, it reads this way. But when the time had fully come... Now, let me just tell you a little bit about that sentence. Uh, to paraphrase it, uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it completely here, but uh, you'll understand... But when the time that had already been determined by God far in the past, in all eternity, had fully come, that every condition had come about at the exact time that God knew that it would come about. So when the time had fully come, it's a picture of God's absolute sovereignty here, God then, I've added that word, sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law, meaning a Jewish woman that would be under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now, that's a, that's a thrilling sentence. Only sons received inheritances in that culture. Only sons. But we know from the New Testament that when you become a Christian you're now a son of God, whether you're male or female doesn't make any difference. Or if to make it clear, you're now an inheritor of all the blessings of God. 
And so therefore, uh, the whole thing is happening here so that all of us might inherit not only salvation, but all that salvation is about. Now, these verses are not only pointing out the exact timing of God's plan, but also the freedom that we Christians now have to live in obedience to the purpose of the law, which was to show us God's will and our sinfulness. The law is like looking in a mirror. It tells you who you really are. And his, his will is good and perfect. And we're now able to live by the will of God because of God's spirit who lives in us. So Jesus was born in a stable and some shepherds arrived to worship him because of a message from an angel. And they left praising God for what they had heard and seen, and that'll be the message for tonight's candlelight service. But in the meantime, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, that's where we're at, reads, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, you know, don't you, that Mary and Joseph are from Nazareth, and that becomes important in a moment. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, a very wicked man, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We come to worship him. Let's talk about the Magi just for a moment. Uh, they probably came from Persia. We're not absolutely sure, but they probably came from Persia or Babylon area. Uh, we know from songs and stuff that they're kings, uh, but, you know, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We travel afar, field and fountain, following yonder star. Now, why am I not on the worship team? <laughs> but so we don't know that, but we know they're stargazers. They're, they would look in the star. They probably were idol worshipers, and they thought they could read things in the star. Now in the sky, we know the, the words plural, so we know that there was more than one. There were maybe two, or or four, or three, or five. Uh, three, we don't know that. We just know that they came about 800 miles. So they're pretty serious. So it would have taken them, they saw the star, and then they traveled 800 miles with their camels and their entourage and all that. And so as they're coming, it would be at least a 40-day uh, or more uh, ride to get to, uh, to, uh, uh, to where they're going to meet with King Herod. And, uh, and they're when they arrive, they, they're talking about it, like, where's the king of the, the Jews? They, they thought that people would know about it, and Herod heard about all that. So that's sort of a little, a, a little different picture than we're used to, because when they came to Jesus, uh, he was no longer in the manger and all that. We don't know how old he was. He could have been a few months old or uh, a year old. We don't know how long that is. But he was no longer in that stable area. He was in some kind of a home, and so he was a, a very small uh, child. Now, we don't know exactly what the Magi believe, but we do know this. 
and this is what's, what excites me here. Somehow God signaled to them through their knowledge of the stars that the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Savior of the world, had already been born. Now, let me go on a little bit of a side thing here. Romans chapter 1 tells us that all we need to know about God is obvious to everyone. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it reads this way. But God shows his anger, that's his righteous anger, from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who push the truth away from themselves. For the truth about God is known to them instinctively. That's important to understand. We know right and wrong. But God has put this knowledge uh, in their hearts from the time the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky and all that God made. Do you know that it takes more faith to believe it all happened by chance or accident or something than to believe what the Bible actually says? They can clearly see his invisible qualities, God's invisible qualities. What are, what are they? His eternal power and divine nature. So they have, we have no, every, we have no excuse whatsoever for not knowing God. And yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. In the many years that I was, I was an atheist and was arguing against the existence of God, I did exactly what he said. I, I knew all of this stuff, but I suppressed it because I was into myself more than I was into anything else. Now look at verse 3. When King Herod heard this, heard that they're asking all these questions, he was disturbed. Now, that's an understatement. Herod was one wicked man. Do you know he killed his favorite wife for a political purpose? He killed two of his sons. There was a saying that it was safer to be a pig in his household than to be a son. I mean, he was just one wicked man. And so he's heard that these people have come and that they're asking about this king of the Jews. And so when he heard this, he was disturbed. And of course, when Herod is disturbed, it says, and all Jerusalem with him. You know, so everybody's really afraid what's going to happen here. And then when he had called together all uh, the people's chief priests, he hasn't talked to the Magi yet, and teachers of the law, these are the biblical experts, the scholars, he knew that they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. He asked them where the Christ, where the Messiah was to be born. And so here's their answer in verse 5. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written hundreds of years before. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And you can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and in Micah chapter 5. Read both of them and look at their context. Now verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly. You need to think about this. He called them secretly. Their entourage wasn't there. Uh, the two of them or the four of them or the three of them, however, they, he called them secretly. They're, they're having this secret high-level meeting. So Herod called the Magi secretly 
and they went back and forth and talking and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And then verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem. The scholars told him that's where Jesus was to be born and said, go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, Report to me so that I too may go and worship him. What a hypocrite. He'd want, want to kill him, not worship him. Now here we see God's timing again. In the book of Luke, we're told how Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem. Most of you know these scriptures well. It reads this way. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the ancestry.com of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married. She was very pregnant to him and was expecting a child. The timing is amazing. Now look at verse 9 in Matthew, chapter 2. After they, that is the Magi, had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Notice the word him, not them, him. They worshipped this small child. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. And the gifts included gold, incense, and myrrh. Now, there's three words here, three words here that I want us just to think about just for a moment. They were overjoyed, they worshipped, and they gave. I mean, that should be a picture of what happens to us when we understand the gospel. When I got saved, I was overjoyed. I, I couldn't believe it. I was such a jerk. How could God do that? He made a mistake. But overjoyed and worshipped. I can remember uh, going to church. I was made to go to church when I was a little kid, I never liked it. It was a very liturgical church. But now I was just in awe when I went to church. And they gave. And I'm not to, it's not just that they gave money. They didn't, that's not what we're talking about here. They just gave. They gave their lives. They worshipped this child. They didn't understand it all, but they worshipped this child. So much has been said about the three gifts. Uh, some is pretty fanciful, but two things are important for us to think about this morning. Number one, the gifts were expensive, so their worship was costly. Worship should cost us something. It really should. To worship means to give your life fully to God in every situation, every circumstance of your life. And second, myrrh was used to embalm more than just a hint of what was in store for baby Jesus. But God intervenes again. Look at verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. 
That's really interesting to me. So they're warned in a dream, don't go back to Herod because he'd certainly get rid of them. He'd, he had met with them secretly, you remember, so he'd just get rid of them. And so they went another route. And Herod didn't know that, so time is going by. And when they had gone, which is, and this is the, the sense of the verbs here, it's, it's just there's an urgency here. So they went and they worshiped, and then they had this dream, and then when they were gone, uh, it says, another angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. It's, there's such an urgency. Get up. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled, here we are again, what the Lord had said through the prophet Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Now here's verse 16. In the meantime, that's the way I would start it, Herod is wondering what's gone, where are the Magi? Why haven't they come and told me yet? And he eventually realizes that he'd been deceived. It must have been, it would be at least a few days. So verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted or deceived is better by the Magi, uh, he was furious, furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Now, no matter how you try to figure it out, the, the, there couldn't have been more than just a few months gone by at the very least, but he, he spreads it out to two years and mercilessly kills, has killed all of these children. You can't even, if you really dwelled on it and thought about it, it's one of the great catastrophes of, of the history of the earth. It's unbelievable. And it's just like, you know, it's often asked, how can a good God allow so much evil in the world? That was one of my favorite arguments. C.S. Lewis helped me on this a lot. And, and he, so he, here's what C.S. Lewis would say. I'm sure of this. How can a, a good God allow so much evil in the world? He would ask, especially, well, how could he allow the killing of these children? Well, I can hear Lewis's voice saying, well, what would you do about it? Oh, I'd stop it. I'd get rid of Herod and on and on and on so that none of the babies are killed. Okay, but there's lots of other things that are bad going on. What would you do then? Well, I'd, I'd, stop, some, I'd stop these things. Wouldn't let them happen. And then, well, where, where would the control you're now taking stop? You see, we would all become totally controlled by whoever decides to control us. <laughs> and we'd be, if it was God and he controlled us at that level, we might as well just be robots. So here, here is what God has done about evil. Rather than taking away our freedom completely as, as human beings, here's what he did. I know you know at least one of the verses. For this is how God loved the world. 
He gave his one and only son, that's Jesus, so that everyone who believes in him, that's Jesus, will not perish, will not go to hell, will not be separated from God in hell forever, but have eternal life. Now, eternal life is the life of God in us right now. We're all going to live forever, but those who become Christians receive that eternal life that God sent Jesus to give to us, to bring to us when we receive Jesus. And so it's a quality of life that's different than we could have ever lived before. And so God sent a son into the world, the next verse says, not to judge the world, it's been judged already, but to save the world through Jesus. The problem of evil submits to two important facts. First, ultimate justice. God enacts ultimate justice. And second, God's personal suffering. Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22 records it. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's the darkest time in all of human history where all of the sin of the world has been put on Jesus. My sin, all my sin has been put on Jesus. All our sin is put on him. And he, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, died in my place so I could live with him forever. Well, now let's go back to our text, verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Remember all of these this terrible atrocity. All these children ripped from their mother's arms, killed. Verse 18, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, you may wonder, well, what's that all about? Where's that in the Bible? Well, it's in Jeremiah chapter 31, and it's worth reading the whole picture in Jeremiah, but the context is hope for the restoration of Israel. Rachel's children have been spread out, have gone, and they're going to return home. So it literally is a picture of restoration. And everybody in that culture in that day reading this for the first time would, from Matthew's pen, would understand exactly what the context was. So now that we know who Jesus is, we also know that he'll comfort us, that he'll give us true rest, true rest. Matthew 11, 28, 29, and 30, I quote them to myself more than maybe any other verses in the Bible. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, now, a yoke was used on an ox, to, an oxen, they put a yoke on and a plow behind the oxen, but the yokes were all custom made so that they wouldn't scratch the neck and they would make, it, make the load that is being pulled actually not hurt the oxen, but also uh, feel lighter than it normally would have. And so come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you a rest, take my yoke upon you my custom-made yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, you can handle it, with my help, and my burden is light, because you have my yoke. 
That's a promise from Jesus. And it's a promise that, uh, you know, this time of the year especially, uh, I've done who knows how many memorial services over the decades, and I always say someplace that, uh, about grief, and uh, Christmas is a, 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 you know, it's a grief starter again. <laughs> the person who's gone, you re, you'll remember Thanksgiving, you remember at Christmas, you remember special celebrations and birthdays. And uh, that Jesus comes to us in a special way. I love Christmas. Jim said last week, and I liked what he said, he said that he likes everything about Christmas. And both of us mean the same thing. I, I do. I like all the lights and all that kind of stuff. And, and the general, not as much as it used to be, but the general peacefulness that comes among people. Uh, but we can live that way all the time. We can live with that peace of God which passes all understanding. Well, verse 19, we need to finish. After Herod died, there was a lot of celebration after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus or Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. The, Israel was northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And uh, so he uh, was not going to go right down to where Archelaus was, where Herod had been. And so uh, having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Galilee. And he, he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Now, this is, the whole story is amazing. It's counterculture in every possible way. A baby born in a manger and all of these various things. But Nazareth. In John chapter 1, I think it's verse 45, 46, somewhere in there, uh, Philip is looking for Nathaniel because he's found out who Jesus was. And he finds Nathaniel and he says, Nathaniel, I found the, the one that the prophets and Moses talked about, the Messiah, and his name is uh, Jesus, and he lives in Nazareth. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, so he, it seems that Jesus has come to the, the lowest strata of society and everybody else too, but he came first to this lowest strata of society. What a picture of God working in human history. So here's our question. How should we respond? If you're not a Christian, then you need to investigate the claims of Jesus, and if they're true... Uh, give your life to Jesus. It's very important. Don't leave here today. Don't go away and turn off the, your television or wherever you're watching from your screen without making sure that you're a Christian. And it really is deceptively simple. It's not necessarily easy, but deceptively simple. All we have to do is admit we're sinners and repent of our sin and say, Dear Jesus, please come into my life. 
and change me. You can't change yourself. Don't try to do that. Don't become religious. Let Jesus change you. And then pray and say, just, Jesus, I give all of myself to all of I know of you. And then Jesus will lead you to the right place to be discipled and will help you to grow as a Christian. And if you want to do that today, here's the way I'm going to do it. Uh, we have a lot of these special New Believers Bibles. And uh, what's really good about them, it's an easy-to-read translation. And uh, one of our pastors, Greg Laurie, uh, put this together. And at the beginning, it gives you an answer to all of the simple questions, why you should go to church and why you should do this and is there heaven or hell and all of that. And it'll give you a chance to read the Bible for yourself and understand it. So when the service ends, in just a couple of more minutes here, when the service ends, I'm going to be in the back. I'll have a pile of them in my arms, and we've got a bunch of them up there. You just need to come up and ask me, and I'll give you one if you want to really investigate what is happening here. Now, it's amazing to me how our society is ignoring the reality of eternity today. I mean, not just in America, but it seems around the world we have forgotten God. Most people are going on with their lives hoping the violence will stop and prosperity will return, especially when I vote for the right politician. Believe it or not, each one of us could change the world because of God in our lives. Each one of us. The gospel is for everyone, rich and poor, male or female, Jew or Gentile, everyone regardless of where we live or our status in life. And we all must be living our lives in a way that honors God without making an idol of our work or our play or our relationships or our possessions. Everything we do or own or strive for must be because of and so that God will be glorified. My friend Don McClure has spoken in this church more than once, and he has done a sermon on Acts 20.24 that I've listened to many times. I think it's the best sermon I've ever heard on that passage, and he's lived it in, in his, uh, uh, his life, his long life. And um, it's, it's really worth uh, considering. Here's the story, well, start back story a little bit. Uh, Paul is being warned that all the places he's going to go, he's going to get in trouble. Maybe he should consider not going to some of them. So here's what he says. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the gospel of God's grace, amazing grace. So I want to be able to say with Paul, and I'll be there sooner than the majority of you, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's pray. Stand with me as we pray. Father, I just pray right now that if there's anyone here at all who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, that the day will be the day that they become Christians. And Father, I pray that you would just work in the hearts of those that are watching and the hearts of those who are here and that that will become a reality. I thank you for Christmas. And I thank you that we can know for sure that we are going to heaven when our last breath on this earth is taken. 
or even when you come and take us yourself. That would be just wonderful. And so, Father, help us all to be totally committed as much as we know how in our lives, at every area of our lives, to your will and your way, to your Son, as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, reading your word, and walking by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.